So if tonight is your first night, you've come to a church named Matthias's Lot. We're a church that believes in God. We believe in Scripture, that it's the inspired Word of God. We believe that God has called us to love others as He has loved us. We believe that God is sovereign, meaning that He has a plan for all things, and His hand is guiding all things. And if you can't tell, we believe in children. You know what I'm saying? Like so much that I think they might be taking over the church. And we believe that with our children, we've been called to teach them all the things that I just mentioned to you. God, Scripture, sovereignty. You guys already heard Mark share a story about his daughter. and I want to share you one about mine. As I have been trying to teach my children about the sovereignty of God, there was something that was kind of funny that happened the other day. I was driving down the road with my kids, and as we were going down the highway, it was just one of those moments. Now, I'm just going to get kind of personal. This is just, we're a church that's also real, so I'm just going to be honest. We're driving down the road, and I've got all four of my kids with me, and I just, like, this smell just, just comes over me. It is like one of the worst smells I've ever smelled in my life. It's one of those that just almost makes me like want to veer off the road and run my car into a bridge just to stop smelling the smell. It was horrible. And so I look back at my kids. I look up in the rearview mirror. I'm like, what is that smell? And Benjamin, my son, looks up at me and he goes, Daddy, Olivia is the stinkiest girl ever. It's so that I, I, I shift my eyes and I look over at Olivia. And Olivia, Olivia has big, beautiful brown eyes. And Olivia looks up at me just with the most serious face and she goes, Daddy, I don't know why God made me do it. <laughs> my children are beginning to uh, believe in the sovereignty of God. So much so that when they fart, they blame it on God. You know? And so when she said it, like the first thing out of my mouth, which I didn't even think about it, was, Olivia, God didn't make you do that, honey. That was Satan. Because I was, I was from the pit of hell, you know? But seriously, we love children in this church. And when you come in here and you see all these kids with us in worship, I know that sometimes you may feel like it's a distraction, but the distraction is worth it. Amen? Because they're experiencing worship with their families, and that's important. It's a beautiful thing. As we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're, we're going to pick up there. Last week, as Mark taught, we looked at the period of time during the crucifixion from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And as we looked at that time, as Jesus was on the cross, we saw a few things. We saw the rulers and we saw the soldiers sneering at Jesus and mocking him. And in the midst of all that, there was a man on the cross that was also mocking Jesus, saying, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really the Savior, why don't you go ahead and just take yourself down from this cross, and while you're at it, go ahead and take me with you. And as he says that, clearly he does not understand the mission of the Savior. One of my favorite things from last week was having this picture in my mind. You know what? If he takes himself down from that tree, it would not prove that he's the Savior. It would prove that he's not the Savior. 
because the Savior's mission is to redeem people through shedding His blood. And so Jesus, because He's the Savior, must resolutely stay on that tree, even though He could take Himself off. But as Jesus is hanging there, there's another thief who's next to Him. And as He hears the mocking of the first thief, He looks at Jesus and He expresses His own unrighteousness. And then He expresses the righteousness of Christ. And He asks Jesus if He could be with Him. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. And we saw a powerful moment of salvation during the crucifixion. We're going to call this message tonight Salvation Part 2. Because we're going to pick up right where we left off in this story of salvation and what's happening at the cross. And there's really three miracles, and we're going to break this up in three ways that we're going to look at. And so we, as we move forward, we'll be looking at three different miracles that are going to happen from noon until 3 o'clock. So as we begin, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be studying verses 44 to 49. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 49, and as you turn there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father God, I pray that you would be the leader of the service. God, I pray as you've already done through the worship and through the prayers and through my preaching, that you would exalt yourself before us. Father, I pray that you would turn away our eyes from the right and from the left. God, I pray that you would hone in our spirits to you. God, I pray that if there are those here tonight who don't know you by the power of the gospel, God, I pray that you would do a work because only you can. So Father, help us to understand your word tonight. Because if you don't illuminate it by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will walk away more confused than we've ever been. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start in verse 44, Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun had stopped shining. So now as we pick up in the story, like I said, it's noon, and the sun has been brightly overhead. And we hear Luke saying that here in this sixth hour, darkness comes over the whole land and the sun literally stops shining. Now, it's very, very interesting here to see this sun go away. And as we talk about this, there's a few things that you really need to understand. And this, by the way, is miracle number one. It is during the time of the Passover. We know that, that Jesus was crucified during the Passover. During the Passover, we can know that this is a miracle because Passover always occurred during the time of a full moon. And during a full moon, it is scientifically, naturally impossible for there to be an, a, full a full eclipse of the sun. So there is no way to explain this darkness that comes over the crucifixion from noon until three other than saying that this is an act of the Almighty God. 
And as we talk about this miracle, and as we talk about all miracles in Scripture, and as we talk about the Bible, for most of us in here who are believers, we have put all of our trust and all of our hope in the Holy Scriptures. And so to hear God tell us this through the writings of Luke is enough for us to believe. But if you're in here tonight and you're saying, you know what, I'm just not fully in, fully buying into this whole scripture thing and that it being like the inerrant word of God. Well, thankfully, believers, we can argue for the happenings around the crucifixion and in fact, the happenings in all of scripture, not only based upon the Bible, which is the true source, but based upon what other secular historians were saying at that time that maybe didn't even know Jesus. There's a quote that I want to share with you this is by a man named Legion. He was a secular Roman historian. The guy didn't know Jesus. He lived in the second century, and he just wrote about history and things that were happening at that time. And he says this, check this out. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen, and there was an earthquake. This guy's writing about the happenings of that day, unknowingly understanding that Jesus here is being crucified, and this is the power of God. Followers of Jesus, may we begin to meet non-believers where they are, sharing with them the truth of Scripture, but not being afraid of the Bible, that it's some type of fictional fairy tale book, but that it's non-fiction and that there's history that will support its happenings. Praise God that we have a faith that can be supported outside of Scripture. Amen? It can be supported in all of life. And we need to learn how to argue it from that place. There's another man that um, began to argue it. His name was Tertullian, and he was one of the early Christian fathers. If you've heard of the Trinity, which most of you probably have, he was the guy that coined the idea of the Trinity. And as he argued in apologetics for the faith, as he began to battle against non-believers and what they were saying, this is exactly what he does. Check out this quote. At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your own annals and preserved in your archives to this day. Tertullian was saying, as he argued for the existence of God, as he was arguing against secular pagans who didn't believe in God, he was saying, in your own writings, you talk about how the sun goes dark and about how there was an earthquake. You're the one that said it. You see, isn't it beautiful? This crucifixion story is not a fairy tale. It's proved in all of history. The sun goes dark on a day where there could be no eclipse during the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's an earthquake, graves break open. It's an amazing, wonderful day. Moving on. I think that we have to ask the question then, why in the world does the sky go dark and here friends i hope that i hope that you came ready to dig deep to dive in to learn to grow because this is a beautiful beautiful moment in history the sky goes dark i believe 
how we can try to understand this and prove the purposes of why the sky would go dark in this moment can be seen out of what Jesus says in Matthew 27. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that during the period from 12 noon until 3 p.m., there is something very, very significant happening to Jesus as He is there on the cross. We've been talking a lot about sin. And we've been talking about how all of us from the moment of birth are depraved. We are completely full of sin and unrighteousness. And we've been needing a Savior who was innocent and completely righteous to come and to pay that penalty for us. And so what is happening here, I believe, as we've been talking about justification and about how there was wrath that has been stored up for unbelievers and for sinners, and that wrath had to be poured out. In this moment that darkness covers the earth and the earth quakes, the world is groaning as the wrath of God is completely and fully poured out to Jesus as He hangs there on that cross. Jesus, in this time on the cross, fully exhausts the wrath of God on those who would believe. The wrath of God for unrighteousness is being poured out, and it's being poured out on the person of Jesus on the cross. That's why he exclaims, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time ever in the relationship of the Father, in the relationship of the Son, there is a moment where the Father God cannot look upon Jesus with favor because he is bearing our wrath on the cross. He's bearing sin on the cross on our behalf. And in this moment... For us, for those who will believe, it is a moment where we have to take great hope in knowing that Jesus, because of his righteousness, because of his perfection, was completely and fully able to carry our sin on that cross and pay for it. I don't want you just to believe me because I'm telling you this. I want you to look at Scripture and to see what Scripture has to say. And so on the screen, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. As Paul writes, he says this about this moment. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you see what Paul says? Jesus becomes sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I can't stand here and pretend that we're ever going to fully understand this. But for what we can understand, friends, don't look at theology and say, you know what, I just want to love people. Amen, I want to love people too. But you better know where the foundation of love comes from. It's right there. It's because God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. And that is the picture of love as Jesus glorifies the Father. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 24. Peter writes, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree 
so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And if you look there in the first part of that, verse 24, he bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. As Christ is there, as he's hanging on the cross, all the sins that believers have committed, he is paying for them as he bears them in his body. How I hope, how I pray that you would understand the beautiful reality of this today. In those moments on the cross, the first miracle that we see is that judgment falls. If you're taking notes, I just encourage you to write that down. Judgment falls, and judgment falls upon Jesus. So let's continue here, verse 45b. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last breath. And the second miracle in this tearing of the curtain, there's some things that you need to understand about this curtain. This curtain was the curtain that stood in between in the, in the temple of Jerusalem, between the temple and the Holy of Holies. There was a huge curtain that hung over the Holy of Holies. Now this curtain was 60 feet wide. It was 30 feet tall. And the curtain was four inches deep. Now that is a big curtain. Now, if you've heard this story before, like don't be thinking about the curtain that's hanging in your living room. It's nothing like it. You know what I mean? This curtain was huge. They say that it took 300 men to carry this curtain. Now, this curtain is torn from top to bottom. And this tearing of the curtain is incredibly symbolic. But in order for you to understand the symbolism of the tearing of this curtain, you have to understand the purpose of the Holy of Holies. You see, in the Holy of Holies, it was a place where the high priest could only enter into one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And as he went in, his own sins had to be atoned for. And they would tie something to his foot. So as he walked in, if he was unrighteous and he stood there in the Holy of Holies before God and he died, he could be pulled out. And as he entered in to the Holy of Holies once a year and to go make atonement for sin, what there would be, what would be seen in there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a, was a box that was covered with gold, and the lid of this box was called the mercy seat. Inside of this box, there were two tablets. Now, many of you will remember this. These tablets were the Ten Commandments that had been given to Moses as he had gone up on Mount Sinai. And so part of the purpose of this Ark of the Covenant is to represent the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is represented in His perfect law. But the other part of the Ark of the Covenant that it symbolized as it represented the presence of the holiness of God is that inside of that box, those tablets were broken. And the brokenness of those tablets 
were the picture of when Moses walked down from Mount Sinai and he saw the people. He saw them as they were worshiping this golden calf. And what does he do? He takes the tablets and he throws them down and the tablets break. And so inside of this Ark of the Covenant are these broken tablets, not only representing the righteousness of God, but representing man's inability to be righteous like God had required. The Ark of the Covenant was where the holy presence of God dwelt. And it was a picture of God's righteousness in our unrighteousness. And the high priest would go in once a year and he would make a blood sacrifice on the mercy seat of this Ark of the Covenant. Now, as we talk about blood sacrifices and animals and this high priest going in one time a year and making this sacrifice. Many of you may be saying, especially those who are new to the faith or you're still wrestling with Christianity, what type of a God would require people to go out to kill animals and to pour their blood on boxes? What is that all about? Here's the deal. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were to point us to the sacrifice that was coming. And every year, as this high priest would go back and make sacrifices, and daily as people would come to the temple and they would make sacrifices with blood over and over, the blood sacrifice was to show that sins could be atoned for by blood. But the fact that people had to continue doing it over and over was to tell them that animals were not sufficient for covering sin. They had to do it continually. Now can you imagine what it must have felt like to have to continually kill animals to feel clean before God? I'm sure it was frustrating. But all of these sacrifices were to lead up to the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Christ. And as we talk about these sacrifices and the fact that they would never fulfill, it's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Look to the screen with me. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The writer of Hebrews is saying it was impossible for goats, it was impossible for bulls, for sheep to be able to take away fully and completely the stain of sin. Now, as that curtain tears in the place where sin is continually atoned for year after year after year, are you getting the picture in your mind of what God is symbolically doing here? He takes a 60 foot long by 30 foot high, by four inches thick, blue ornate curtain that took 300 men to carry. And in a matter of a second, he rips that thing from top to bottom as Jesus breathes his last breath. Friends, what he is saying is that there is no more need for animal sacrifice. The sacrifices of animals were temporary. They were imperfect. You had to continually do it over and over and over. But the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ, is sufficient. 
There will never, ever need to be another high priest who will walk in through these massive curtains and risk death by entering in the Holy of Holies because now that the curtain is torn from top to bottom, everyone can enter in. And no one will risk death in my presence. And not only that, not only now can we enter in to the presence of God as you and I are freed to speak to Him and to talk to Him throughout our day and to personally confess our sins without the need for a high priest to go on before us. We can do it ourselves. And through the blood of Jesus, He can forgive. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. In Hebrews, again, I want you to see how the writer, chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, fully says this. Everything that I just articulated to you. Check this out. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. When Jesus came to be like our high priest that would go in and make a once a year blood sacrifice for us. When Jesus came as our high priest to do that, he didn't enter into a temple that was made with hands. Jesus entered into the very presence of God on our behalf. That's why it says, not a part of creation. Jesus goes before God, before us. And check out verse 12. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves. Jesus didn't enter in like a high priest would enter in where they would have to bring calves and they would have to bring bulls and they'd have to bring goats. No, Jesus entered in the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Friends, Jesus did it all. And because he did it, and because the, tur- the curtain was torn into, we're able to enter into the presence of a holy God, and he comes out and he enters into us. That is a beautiful moment in history. Praise God that you didn't have to show up here today with a sheep. Amen? Not only do we see the temple tearing here, or the see the curtain tearing here. But what also we see is Jesus crying out as he says, it is finished. And he commits his hands. He commits himself to the Spirit. He says right there in verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last breath. There's something beautiful about this last moment in the life here of Jesus in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, I don't know if you remember this, but in Luke, one of the very first things that we see Jesus saying after he's been lost and his parents go back and they're searching for him and they find him inside of the temple teaching the grown men. And he says, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? One of the very first words out of the mouth of Jesus is about his father. And now as he commits his spirit and as he dies... He says, Father, into you I commit my spirit. The other beautiful thing here is that it is Jesus who is calling the time when he will die. 
He cries this out in a loud voice, which automatically shows us that most men who were crucified at this moment of the crucifixion, there would be no possible way that they would be able to raise their voice and to be able to cry out in a moment of final death. But because Jesus is God, he's able to cry out in a loud voice as he commits his spirit to his Father. And Jesus dies. Now as we look at the last verse, we've seen that judgment has fallen. But as judgment has fallen, freedom follows. And so again, if you're writing notes, judgment falls, but after judgment falls upon Jesus, freedom falls follows for those who will believe but then after freedom follows after jesus has paid the debt on the cross for sin another miracle happens this is the third and final miracle that we'll talk about tonight people respond people respond and as i thought about this miracle this is what i thought about as i tried to communicate that this is a miracle to you I can easily see, which is what I would have done before I really dug into this text and tried to understand it, that as you try to compare the sun going dark, which is amazing, and as you try to compare a four-inch curtain being torn from top to bottom, it's hard to compare these first two miracles with a miracle called People Are Responding. Because we see this miracle every week, right? We come to church, we are a part of worship, and we see people responding in one way or another. Last week, we had several people after the message that responded by saying that they wanted to follow Jesus and trust in Him for the rest of their life. Can you compare the sun going dark with someone getting saved and say that they're both a miracle? Absolutely. And you know what else? Here's what I would say and I would argue on this, is that to me, the sun going dark and the curtain tearing those two miracles and the comparison of what they bring about, which is salvation, that salvation is the greater of the three. This is why I mean that. And, and I'm just going to tell you why I'm so passionate about this point. Last week in Mark's message, as he was preaching about a robber on the cross next to Jesus who looked at Jesus, admits the fact that he was a thief, admits the fact that he was a liar, and most likely he was a murderer. This guy was nasty in mine and yours interpretations. He had a hard heart. He was an outcast. He was a reject. He was one of the ones that deserved to die. And as we look at that man, look over at Jesus in the last moments of his life and say, Jesus, you're God, and I want to be with you. Will you save me? As I saw that last week, and I was reminded afresh of the power of salvation through God for those who will believe, I was convicted to the core, and here's why. Because I, as I sat back there, like many of you who were here last week, each of us was supposed to write down the name on a piece of paper of someone in our life that we were going to pray for, for salvation. And as I wrote down the names of people in my life that I know that need to be saved, 
I wrote down the names of four of my neighbors that as I felt like four years ago that God was calling me to reach out to. And as I wrote down their names, and then as I thought about the robber, it struck me that over the course of the last four years, as I have gotten closer and closer to these neighbors of mine, that I believe that God has put me in their life to be a light of the gospel for them, I realized that my heart has been growing hard to them little by little. And here's why. Because they are hostile to the gospel. Because in conversations that I've had with them, there has been moments where I have brought up the name of Jesus, or I have brought up faith, and I've had different neighbors look at me and say, in my eyes, don't talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about your religion. I want to be your neighbor. I want to be your friend. I don't want you to convert me. And as I've heard that, systematically over time, I have begun to judge the savability of my neighbors. Does that make sense? I have begun to, in my mind and in my flesh, begin, even though I've not spoken it, and I've not even talked about it with my wife, I have begun to try to spend more time with neighbors that I feel like have the opportunity for salvation in my own assumptions, and I have begun to spend less time with those that are hostile to the gospel because it's like I want to make the right investments with my time. Friends, let me tell you something. If a thief on the cross can meet Jesus who is a murderer and a robber, then my most hostile neighbor can meet Jesus. God has the power to save. The craziest, most hostile people that any of us know. And as I wrote those names down, my heart broke because I became God. And I begin to assess those who should be saved and those who should not. It is sinful. It is religious. It will kill my mission in my neighborhood. As a church, if we begin to assess the savability of people in this neighborhood, we will neuter the gospel and we will render the opportunity for our church to see salvations useless.